0: My name is Anat Wilf, and this is the We Should All Be Zionists podcast. Each week, I'll be reading one essay from my latest collection of essays book, We Should All Be Zionists, on issues facing the Jewish people and Israelis today. Conflict, peace, religion, politics, past, present, and future. At the end, I'll be joined by columnist Blake Flayton for a discussion on the themes of the essay and how they apply to contemporary Israel and Jewish life. You can purchase your own copy of We Should All Be Zionists anywhere you get your books. Thanks for listening. Let's start. <laughs> Durban, A Legacy of Destruction Essay for the International Legal Forum on the 20th anniversary of Durban 4, September 2021. In 1991, UN General Assembly Resolution 3379 famously, or infamously, known as Zionism is Racism Resolution, was revoked by the United Nations. Whereas the initial resolution was passed by a vote of 72 to 35 with 32 abstentions, the resolution revoking the Determination Clause that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination was passed by a vote of 111 nations, of which 90 sponsored the resolution, to 25 against with 13 abstentions. This overwhelming revocation was considered a long-overdue correction for a resolution that marked a low point in the UN's history and mocked the pledge and principles upon which the UN was founded, as stated by then-U.S. President. But this moment proved fleeting. When the World Conference Against Racism convened in 2001 under the UN auspices in Durban, South Africa, it found it expedient to revive this equation of Zionism to racism. Convening in a South Africa where the effects of apartheid were still very much prevalent and where the system of racist inequality continued to persist in all but name, the members of the conference found it more urgent to fight a non-existent form of racism rather than the ones that were evident all around them. In doing so, the Durban Conference was at once operating against the very principle on which the entire global political system, including the UN, was based, running away from its mandate to fight racism and making a major contribution to preventing peace. To equate the movement for liberation and self-determination of the Jewish people in their homeland to racism and racial discrimination was to undermine the very principle upon which the entire global political system rested since the fall of empires. Throughout the 20th century, as nation after nation, peoples after peoples, released themselves from the yoke of empire, establishing their own nation-states, They did so in the name of self-determination of peoples. This became the organizing principle of the global political system, including the UN itself, a body that brings together the sovereign nation-states of self-determining peoples. To argue that for the Jewish people to pursue self-determination, a respected principle that underpinned the other nation-state members of the UN is racism, was at best to question the entire principle of self-determination for peoples, or at the very worst, to single out the Jewish people and only the Jewish people from ever pursuing this right. In doing so, those who participated in reviving this equation of Zionism to racism betrayed the very mandate they were given to fight racism by perverting the very notion of racism and engaging in the age-old practice of finding a Jewish scapegoat to avoid dealing with deep and abiding problems at home. Not content with undermining UN principles and betraying its mandate to fight racism, the Durban Conference also made a major contribution to preventing peace. The decade between revoking and reviving Zionism is Racism demonstrated the role of vilification of Israel and Zionism in preventing peace. The revocation was part of the Madrid Conference, emphasizing the link between making peace and accepting Israel as a legitimate and even indigenous presence in the region, rather than a foreign implant that must be ousted with violence. This message was heard in Israel and brought about the revival of the Israeli peace camp the election of a labor government led by Prime Minister Rabin, the launching of the Oslo Accords, and a series of Israeli retreats from Gaza and the West Bank. In stark contrast, the revival of the equation at Durban came only a few short months after Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian people violently rejected the boldest and most far-reaching proposal for ending the conflict by establishing a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, free of settlements with Jerusalem as its capital, put forth by Ehud Barak, a successor to Rabin. Rather than sending a message to Palestinians, the Jews are a people with a deep connection to the land, and that competing claims for the same piece of land are best settled by agreeing that while each side could have some of the land, neither will have it all. In vilifying Zionism, the Durban Conference turned the conflict into one between good and evil. Evil must be defeated and eradicated. One does not negotiate border and security arrangements with evil. This message was heard in Israel loud and clear. Rather than encouraging Israeli peacemaking, many in the international community prefer to sustain Palestinian violence and rejectionism. Twenty years after convening, the Durban conference could look back on two decades of a successful policy of utter destruction. By vilifying Zionism as racism, the conference succeeded in undermining UN foundational principles Betraying its mandate to fight real racism by engaging in the ancient practice of scapegoating Jews and ensuring that peace is all but impossible. Quite a legacy.
1: So and not obviously, this piece, as it relates to South Africa, is important to be discussing right now because of South Africa's uh, recent uh, accusation of genocide against Israel, which last week was brought before the International Court of Justice uh, in The Hague, uh, to which many people commented on, and there has been a lot of discourse about uh, some of it. Some of it, I'll emphasize, worth your while in actually reading. But before we talk about what happened at the ICJ, I want to talk about South Africa because obviously uh, it has a history of anti-Zionism and of demonization of Israel um, that. Some can even say preceded the Durban conference, um, and a point that you make that I resonate with a lot when talking about Israel and anti-Zionism, and that is resonating with lots of people who read and listen to your work, uh, is that anti-Zionism is always a consequence of a failing society or a failing uh, given group. You know, whether it be the campus, whether it be the Soviets, whether it be Jeremy Corbyn's labor, whether it be the Arabs, whether it be South Africa. Is this a a automatic given? As in, can we look at an anti-Zion? Can we look at a society like South Africa? And can we automatically market with the label of failure simply ipso facto because they are extremely hostile to Israel? And what what is it about a failing society that makes them so likely to go down this particular path of politics?
0: So it's not that as soon as you see the rise of anti-Zionism, that itself tells you that it's a failing society or a society in multiple crisis. It's just that I haven't seen any counterexample. Just every place that I've seen anti-Zionism rise to become a defining ideology of a society, of a country, of an organization, you poke. And it's a failing society. There's a crisis. I don't think it's a coincidence that people were exposed to the rot at the heart of academic institutions, the top academic institutions of America, with the rising anti-Zionism in those institutions. I just don't think it's a coincidence. So you could argue that those are repeated correlations, not causations, but. Somehow, they go together. Why? What's the causation if you only have correlation? That goes to the fact that anti-Zionism is but the respectable replacement for anti-Semitism, which also was in its time the respectable replacement for anti-Jewish theology. And they all share the fact that they are scapegoating mechanisms. My definition of anti-Semitism is it's not about a prejudice. It's not about hatred. I call it a scapegoating mechanism of failed societies or societies in crisis that tends to be effective in societies that, were, that are built on the substrate of either Christianity or Islam. It's less likely to work in societies that have no theological beef with the Jews.
1: Mm-hmm. and now turning to the icj you know i c- couldn't help but feel a little bit depressed and oh, very holy. cynical Join the club <laughs> yeah and very cynical uh during the couple of days where it was you know the main thing in the news cycle or at least in our news yeah. cycles because this is our algorithm it's all we see it's all we do uh because i felt overwhelmingly that let's say the icj in five years from now reaches a verdict that Israel did not commit a genocide uh, because Israel's defense was strong enough. I do want to get your take on Israel's defense and what you think worked and what you think didn't work. But mainly the point of this question is to say, did it even matter? Because is this simply a public relations I think anybody would identify it as a win because if you look online, you see videos of South Africa, the the representatives, the lawyers from South Africa speaking, getting millions of views, and this is a very theatrical uh, expression release of all of this pent up rage at Israel that has given people a lot of what they're looking for, like sound bites and clips and and, and videos of Israel finally, you know getting a mouthful, getting what it deserved. And I just felt overwhelmingly like we had already lost regardless of the decision that was made. Um, maybe you could, I don't know, cheer me up a little bit and also talk about Israel's strategy and this whole thing.
0: Uh, no cheering up here.
1: <laughs> I, I, uh, I was yeah, worried.
0: Yeah, because you're absolutely right. The entire strategy was to launder uh, this equation of Zionism with evils and in previous, uh, episodes, we talked about it as the placard strategy. So Zionism is racism, laundered it through the UN General Assembly. And then in Durban, which I don't mention here was also really the rise in the beginning of the apartheid charge that governed the, the next 20 years. And now we're seeing the laundering of the genocide charge through the authority of the, ICJ. And the reason is why do we need it? Because in order to vilify the collective Jew, you need a source of authority. And the church is no longer relevant. And racialized anti Semitism under the guise of science is no longer has been discredited. So the sources of authority that we have now are the high priests of human rights, and international bodies. So it's important that when people go to the streets and chant uh, genocide in Israel and apartheid, they will know that they are speaking on behalf of the highest authority of the land, the human rights body, the international organization. So in that sense, you're right. This is what's going on. And the only thing that mattered is to say Israel genocide in the same sentence, the verdict five years from now doesn't matter. And you're right completely. Um, I also uh, listened to a talk that explains all the legal intricacies and never again, I also felt depressed after that because I, I thought, oh my God, we've fallen to, into this like mirror world catch 22 because um uh, This uh, legal scholar explained that in the international courts of justice, it's essentially arbitration between states. As a result, Hamas is not party to that. So Israel can be told that it cannot pursue the war, but Hamas cannot be told that because it's not a state and therefore can operate outside the system. Or for example, they explained that the charge of genocide is incredibly a high bar uh, to meet it. But there's actually an incredibly low bar that says that when we want to prevent genocide, there's a very low bar because you want to prevent it. Uh So then almost anything goes. And South Africa can bring the charge, even though it's not an interested party, because legally it was decided that all, all states have an interest in preventing genocide, so you don't have to be immediately affected. And... It's just, it became this like legal maze that you realize that this is now being used as a way to prevent Israel from exercising self-defense. And I think that was an important part of the Israeli defense strategy uh, in that it was well done. I think it could have been done much, much, much more in the sense of saying, what choice do we have? And um, our colleague Shani Moore, I think, is now in the process of writing something that essentially the only justifiable verdict that this court can come with is to actually say that Israel has the duty to defend itself and to fight and to prevent the genocidal efforts of Hamas. Because that's the actual prevention of genocide. Uh, so yes, we're living in a mirror world. Uh, we're living in a world where the charges are being brought in order to be laundered. And it doesn't matter what goes on because you're right, they've already won. And as in the case of Zionism as racism, maybe Durban, after some time sometimes enough countries and peoples wake up to realize that using these bodies against Israel serves to discredit the bodies themselves. And if not to discredit them completely, to basically prevent them from carrying their mission.
1: And what do you say to the argument to the people who say, you know, they have sort of the Ben-Gurion umshmum attitude about it, which is what Ben-Gurion called the United Nations to mean that nothing of significance ever happened at the United Nations. It was stupid to listen to them about anything. What do you say to the people who might propose that Israel have never shown up to the ICJ meeting doesn't involve itself in international bodies anymore, rolls its eyes and said, the whole world is going to hate us, the whole world is going to hold us to a double standard. It's best not to even give them the soundbite of us defending ourselves of or us explaining why we need to defend ourselves because they're just going to twist it for their own nefarious purposes anyway. It's sort of like the Benzia Netanyahu like worldview of there's no point in getting involved in any of this. We just need to worry about defending ourselves.
0: So um it's one of the dilemmas uh, I face All uh, and I think about. First of all, it's important to say, Ben-Gurion said, Um Shmum, he didn't act this way. <laughs> he sent our best person, Abba Ibn, to represent <laughs> us there. Like He took it seriously. He did not do what Netanyahu did, which is send, let's say, less than Abba Ibn's to represent us there. He, he took it very, very seriously. Um... And, and he understood that Israel operates within constraints. Uh, he was smart, uh, and he understood what are the real constraints that Israel operates in.
1: So he understood the value of the war of the words, is what you're saying?
0: Yes, and, and he knew what Israel can and cannot do. But um, this, this is something that I'm of two minds of, because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. You're looking at the way that these bodies serve to launder and to give respectability and authority to anti-Israel and anti-Zionist sentiments of really of of the worst kind. Uh, You know, Hillel Neuer of UN Watch monitors and uh, fights really to hold the UN true to its principles and the way that Israel is singled out and the Orwellian name. UN Human Rights Council. And um, Hillel always shows, uh, the UN Watch always shows the number of condemnations against Israel and how disproportionate it is to any other country. But what I found most fascinating is when Hillel told me that it's not just the number, it's the tone. So when Sudan is condemned, the condemnation looks like this. Dear Sudan, we really appreciate the effort you've made to kill fewer people. Keep going this way. Well done. Just try to kill a little bit less in the future. When Israel is condemned, it's in these darker than dark, completely definite tones. There's never any notion that Israel is trying to do anything right. So it's not just the numbers. It's just this presentation of absolute evil. So I follow that, I study it and it's disturbing to see the authority and respectability that it gives to these ideas. But on the other hand, this was the deepest desire of the Zionist vision of Herzl to establish a state amim, with the support of the world. The moment when Abba Ibn stands next to the Israeli flag being hoisted outside the United Nations is a great moment of victory, of achievement. So, and at the end of the day, also we have to admit we're small people, we're tiny people. Uh, We can't just kind of turn our back and throw the keys. We need friends. We need allies. It's not that the whole world is against us. A substantial share, but we also have friends and have allies. And I know that some of them are sometimes offended that we take them for granted. We say the whole world is against us and they're like, we've been speaking up for you all (laughs) this time. You know, can we get some recognition here? Um, So I think it's important to understand Yes, a lot are against us, but we also have friends. And we do want, there is a desire to ultimately achieve this recognition. Um, And that's why I am of two minds. It's a dilemma and I can't say, okay, clearly yes or clearly no. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I think I'm the same way. I wanted to say at the beginning of the hearing, to hell with everything. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to see it. And then when I heard a couple of days later that Germany was joining the case in support of Israel and objecting to the accusation of genocide the meaning of that gesture mm-hmm. I felt was something historic and the insight mm-hmm. into where thinkers are mm-hmm. in these two countries where the west is where south africa is where the palestinians yeah. are uh it 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 made me agree with you that perhaps this is this is still a battle worth fighting and that we need to show up and be present so that we can say, look, we are really in the good graces and we are really partners of the forward-thinking progressive world who have our backs in all of this. Um, just by looking at the countries who are attacking Israel, the ICJ, and the countries that are supporting Israel, I think that's pretty evident on its own. Um, so thank you, Aina. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm looking forward to our next one, of course. Thank you.